Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What's up, y'all? Welcome into another episode of the Believe in Kentucky podcast, brought to you courtesy of the Believe Podcast Network, alongside the UK Hall of Famer, the Tennessee Sports Hall of Famer, Tony T.D. Delk. My name is Benny Hardy. What's good with you, T.D.? Brother, it is another day in the ATL, just enjoying um, watching some of these playoff games, man, and, and just kind of seeing us get back to some normal, but not all the way there yet. That's it. Just a little here and a little there. Yes, in spots. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Definitely got to get your thoughts on these playoffs. It's as crazy as it seemed. It was all chalk, though, but uh, in the end for the second round. Top four seed. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I, I think uh, I really liked the way OKC played and, you know, uh, you know, you look at Chris Paul leaving – well, actually not leaving. They traded him to OKC, and, and you thought when he got to OKC, he would just be a pawn for maybe another team or they would just buy him out of his contract. But, you know, it, it's funny that you can be 35 and go to an organization and you feel like, you know, they might, appre- they might not appreciate you as much, but seemed like they really embraced him. And he really became a good locker room guy, a good mentor to Shea. To Shea and um, some of the younger guys that were there. And, um, you know, I think that's the key to as you're approaching, as they said, at back nine, you know, you got to start being more of a locker room guy. I know they, although they do owe him a lot of money in the next two or three years, uh, you know, I, I think you realize that, you know, when you come in, you, you, you change organization, is that you, everybody wants to feel appreciated, wants to feel loved. And I think that's where, when I think about, me going to University of Kentucky and Billy Donovan was probably the main reason why I made that decision, you know, because he knows how to embrace you uh, as a family member. And although other people might've saw something differently, you know, he saw someone that could really help him lead the young guys. And, and you really need that. And I think guys, as they get older, and of course you want to be that same player you were when you were like in your twenties, but you have to be realistic and realistic means, at some point in time, you might have to be a Vince Carter, and and you can still play in this league three or four more years just being a mentor. Yeah. Going back to Billy Donovan, because you talked about him before, how influential he was with you going to Kentucky. Um, was he kind of – he was basically kind of like the KP for you, right? You, you know, you went to Kentucky because a lot – had a lot to do with Billy. Yes, it did. It did. And I think when you have um, – someone who gets connected with your family like he really was you know got to know my my brothers who was uh instrumental in me making the decision but just all, all my all the things i did with them you know he knew that those guys were probably gonna be the closest to me and when it came time to make my decision parents wasn't too concerned you know my mom wasn't a huge basketball fan and uh, my dad you know he he could he, he listened to the game on the radio but this is so this is so funny i was just thinking the other night I said, my dad, from the time I started playing basketball 
until I made it to Kentucky had never seen me play basketball. And my parents were married for over 50 years, but my dad was older, you know, so he didn't leave the house. You know, he was, it was so funny that, you know, he listened to the games on the radio all the time, but, um, you know, someone who definitely loved, you know, sports. And when you ha can have a coach like a Billy Donovan, I mean, they can have such a, such a big influence on your career. You don't even think about it. Cause even when I wasn't playing on a first guy in Kentucky, I still had to make a decision on what do I do next? Do I stay here or do I go somewhere else? And, you know, we became lab rats, you know, we just went in, started working on a few, few things. And then he kind of explained to me uh, what coach Patino had in plan for my future. And when you're like 18, 19, you're seeing your peers play is you want to play. So it, it was just tough for me throughout my first throughout my freshman season, just trying to find my identity, who I was when I got to Kentucky. I knew what I what I was capable of doing if I got the opportunity to play. And he was just encouraging, man. And he just was like, hey man, you know, it, it's gonna happen. You have to be patient. And that's the one thing I would tell my listeners and especially for those young kids is that, you know, everybody wants instant success. But when you really work hard and it comes, it's gonna last a lot longer. So was, you know, for those of us who don't know Billy like you do, you know, you, you see him on TV as a fan. If you're in the arena back when we were going to games, you see him in the arena. If you're in the media, you get to talk to him, you know, in a post-game press conference, something like that. Was Billy the – and he doesn't strike me as this guy, but was he the good cop to Patino's bad cop on the staff when you were there? <laughs> <laughs> hey, somebody has to be the good cop. <laughs> It's so funny you say that, too, because, I mean, he really was a good cop. Because, I mean, we had – it's funny, Herb Sendig was like a bad cop. Okay. Uh, and Winston Bennett was a bad cop. Great, great dude, man. I got to know Winston oh. after I was done playing. But, you know, in, in, in my time, there's some of the coaches. Uh, Jim O'Brien was a good cop. Uh, Bernadette Locke was a good cop. Uh, you know, so he, we had we had good cops and we had – we had bad cops. <laughs> so the number one was the bad cop, <laughs> was, was Coach Patino, but he got the most out of us, man. You know, I, I, I will say this, of all the coaches I played for, he probably taught me the most about the game. You know, just from a mental aspect, X and O, and just being prepared, you know, and, and arriving early, staying late. Like, he taught us so much, you know, and, 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 I, and I look back to some of those practices. They were, they were difficult. You know, very difficult. But, you know, once you start getting used to him and, and you're doing your job is, you know, he's going to back off. You know what I'm saying? So it's like do your job and you do your job. We all will be happy. You know, it's kind of like, you know, with us being parents, you know, our kids, they want to they want to give us an answer before they listen to what we're, what, what we're, what we're actually asking them to do. You know what I'm saying? So they already have a, a rebuttal before they even listen to the questions. So it. <laughs> It is really about listening, applying, and also what I consider to be really important for most of, most of the youth is just being disciplined, man. You gotta, you gotta self-patrol yourself. It's great to have your parents and your coaches, your teachers, but when you can really self-patrol yourself and hold yourself accountable, that's maturity to me. Mm -hmm, for sure. Now, when you would have a good game in high school and, and come home, what what will Mr. Delk, your dad, say after he's listening on, on the radio? 
You know what? It, it, it's so funny, man. I, I had a a pleasant household, and what I mean by pleasant, I never felt pressure from my mom and dad. Um, and that's something I know a lot of kids. You know, as I train kids and have a few teams here in Atlanta, is you know the parents are are cheerleaders, they're fans. They also try to be coaches. They're referees. You know, they they want to have they want to wear too many hats, mm-hmm. and. I was fortunate enough to have to have older parents that they just appreciated when I walked in the house. You know, it wasn't about, hey, you had 50 points, you know, uh, uh, you didn't do this. They didn't really know about all that. My mom, you know, she watched my brother, but once once again, my mom went to my middle school game. She went to my senior game in high school. And those were like the only times that she saw me play. So when you can walk in the house and you play and you have, you can just walk in and there's no pressure on you. I think that's what usually helps kids out the most is trying to understand, you know, how can I be the best version of me and not really worry about my parents as much. And I think that's where kids got to really just start, you know, just, you know, having two different mindsets and one being that, you know what, I got to take care of me most importantly. But then second of all, I got to be the best version of me all the time. And it's, and it's a lot of pressure. I mean, it's a lot of pressure just being a, being a kid trying to impress your parents all the time. And I really didn't have to do that. So, you know, it, it was, for me, it was great uh, just being able to walk in the house and, and just really detox. Cause when you, when you've had a tough game or you had a game where you missed some shots, you turned the ball over, you could have done something better defensively. So, so I was constantly replaying all these thoughts in my head all the time as, as I'm driving home, uh, riding home with my brothers or my coaches bringing me home. So I'm already beating myself up before I even get in, before, before I even get in the door. And then on top of that, you know, I couldn't go to sleep because now as I'm replaying everything, I'm thinking what could I have done differently in order for me to have helped my team win a game? And what could I have done differently, you know, to, to probably make, uh, to, to do something better on defense, to box out or to get a teammate open or, or be more of a leader? And I was just having this conversation with one of my – really good friends, Kendall Dance, who ended up leading us to a state title as a coach in 2015. I say, if I was a better leader in 1992, I think we would have done a better job of probably, probably winning, probably winning a state championship. Oh, when you go back to, you mentioned your brother, you talked about your brother, Leslie, a lot. Was he the same height as you? Was he taller than you, shorter than you? Were y'all built the same? We probably was – he was built – because, you know, cause he, he was a grown-up. You know, he was a grown man. So you're looking at a brother that's in his 30s, and you're looking at a, a young teenager that's, you know, 15, 16. So he had, the, as, we, we, as we know, it, the grown man's strength. <laughs> and having grown man strength, me, you know, he was a lot stronger than me when it came down to posting up or – Use this, use this hands to kind of guide me in the direction he wanted me to go. So I really had to learn how to neutralize his strength. But how, how I could neutralize his strength was I became a really a good athlete that could jump quickly off the ground. So I had a, a, an explosive first jump and an explosive second and third jump. So I could get off the ground really fast. So that was something that I had that as he got older, he probably never had it anyway. You know, not talk, not talk bad about my brother. But, you know, it was just a gift that I was blessed with. And that allowed me to be able to react and do things a lot quicker because 
of my explosiveness. And um, so I use that to my advantage, you know, and, and even when I was able to play against my peers in high school was when you started, when I started beating my brothers who were grown, grown adults, you know, I, I knew that when I went against my peers, you know, it, it was, it was going to be easy. So that's what my, my next thing was that, that first time you beat Leslie, was it a, was it a war? And I'm, I'm sure did you let him know? Oh, absolutely, man. I, you know what V I, I remember to this day, man, is that I had probably, I just got back from Atlanta. I was visiting my brother, Rick. I came down to Smith to summer with him, trained with him, uh, watched his kids, you know, as him and his wife went to work. So, you know, we would go to the park. He'd make me run like four laps in the leg, wait to try to tire me out. I'm like, man. And I, but he was you no know, building mental, mental toughness. He was drunk, dropped me off at the park in Atlanta. I didn't know anyone. Look, country boy in the city, man. I'm, I'm scared to death. I'm like, man, I'm like, bro, what you go? He's like, man, I'll be back to get you in two hours. Yeah. Play, have fun. And I get to know somebody. I'm like, all right, man. So, long story short, I started being my brother before my brother Ricky, who's my oldest brother, who was an NAI All American. I started beating him uh, the last few weeks of, uh, of me spending that summer in Atlanta. So when I went back, you know, Les, he, he didn't know how good I got. He was like, man, you know, little brother back now. And I'm like, hey, man, let's play one-on-one. -on -one. Because I already knew once I beat Ricky, I was like, oh, Les don't even know. Because what he, what he did know was is that, you know, now playing one-on-one, -on -one, you got to be able to make a lot of shots consecutively. So I, I, I would dribble until I got the shot I wanted every time. And mm. so it would tire my it would tire my brother Ricky out, and I said I got to use that same strategy on Les. And so we battled, man. The game was game was go, the game went to twelve, and it was eleven eleven. This was the first time I had the ball to win the game. So there've been times before before I left, you know, I was in position, I lost the ball, he blocked my shot, good defense. But this was the one time I had the ball, and he was playing his best defense, the best defense he's ever played on me. And I remember driving right shooting a high arcing shot that 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 probably hit a leaf on the way in and when i hit the shot you know it, it just i can replay it in my head it just went up in the air about man probably about 20 30 feet man i'm, I'm just watching it as it goes up in the air swishes oh no. i immediately because our house there's a house in between our house so i run through the neighbor's backyard run through the back door and tell mom, tell my mom, like, I beat less. And my mom is she's doing a puzzle book. She looked up at me and put her head back down. <laughs> <laughs> what you tell me? It, it was so funny because for, for so many for so long, she just told me she was like, you need to stop playing against them, them older boys. It used to be older guys coming uh coming over to my brother's house playing. He said, You're gonna get hurt. He said, Your brother gonna hurt you. And I knew in the back of my mind, you know, I knew I was gonna get better, but I wasn't going to let their age stop me from, you know, playing against them or not wanting to beat them. I was just so competitive, man. So what my brother Les made me was a true competitor by beating me all those, all those, uh, for those couple of years and beat me all those games, man, it, it really drove me to be the ultimate competitor. Man, that is, that is unbelievable. Yeah. Just like yesterday, still remember the shot. 12 to 11, you got it, man. Yes, man. Right. Yes. Uh, you know what? Is, you know what's funny. I also remember the first time, because you know we would play backyard football with, without pass. You know, you talking about tackling in the grass or on the dirt. And I was telling one of my good friends in Kentucky, uh, Antoine Spillman, I said, I remember what what detoured me or what what retired me from football. 
I went and tried to use my basketball move. It was just, it was this high path. So I jumped up, caught the ball. Man, some dude took my leg. His name was Thomas Hurt, come to think about. It. I don't know who exactly who he is. He took my legs and I must have fell on my man, I I fell so hard on my back. I might have had a concussion, but mm. it took me about 30 minutes an hour, you know, just to really gather my thoughts. And when I was gathering my thoughts, I said, you know what, man? I don't think I'm ever gonna play football again. <laughs> and I had to drive, I had to ride my bike back across town, which is about 30 minutes away. And, and that whole ride back, man, you know, I was you talking my back hurting, legs hurting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was dirty because I, I, he hit me and I fell in the dirt. So it was, it, like you said, man, it, it was embarrassing, but also it made me, it made me quit football. So I tell the kids to this day, I say it's so different when we play backyard football. It was really tackle, and it was tackle without pads. Exactly, exactly, y'all. We rolling right along as we do on the Bleed Podcast Network, Believe in Kentucky. Go straight to the site to check us out, bleed.com, anywhere you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, CastBox, anywhere you get them, check us out. We'll be there. Give us five stars on iTunes. Uh, put a comment in there if you want to. Tell your friends about it. We definitely appreciate it. If you want to advertise on the show, feel free. TD and I would gladly promote your business or your product. Speaking of football, real quick, too, shifting to Kentucky football, they got a huge recruit. And I'm not a huge recruiting guy that like keeps up with every single prospect, whether they come in or where they're going. But Jagger Burton is from Lexington, Frederick Douglass High School, the number one player in the state, offensive lineman that's going to be committing to the Cats. Um, DeKale Crowdis is already committed to, to Kentucky from Frederick Douglass High School as well. Kentucky is locking up the talent in state. This Jagger Burton kid picked Kentucky over Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, or the, wow. or the big dogs, and he decided right. in Lexington. Kentucky's offensive line is already stacked. Now, they're going to lose a few guys to the pros after this season, but you got a guy like this coming in and some guys waiting in the wings. So you, you're not going to see a drop-off anytime soon with what Kentucky football is doing. Well, I think what's what's key, as you said earlier, you always want to try to get the best players in your state. And the way you get the best players in your state is by winning. And when they see a, a winning a winning program and a program where they don't have to leave, I mean, what kid wouldn't want to stay at home, you know, and 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 take his talent, you know, well, actually, his talent stay at home, you know, because you, you don't want to go somewhere else and help them be one of the dominant teams in the country when you could have just stayed at home and helped your team out. So I'm so happy that, you know, they're able to get those top players at home and those players will consider going to, to Kentucky because Kentucky has done a great job of just recruiting, recruiting the right talent, but also getting the right individuals into to a program that's been doing well, you know, for a few years now. And all of that started with the culture. It also started with, the, with, a, with having a coach that understands you know, different styles, but also how can I develop these men into uh, NFL players at, at some point in time, but also just making them, you know, uh, really good teammates. You know, how, how do you fit these pieces in? Because football is, 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 to me, is a different kind of puzzle. You know, when you're talking about you got to have, you know, your offense, your defense, your special teams, you got to have a lot of different moving parts in order for it to be successful. So it, it definitely requires more than, you know, a, a few coaches. You know, you got to have the right coaches teaching the right 
implementing your system. For sure. And of course, they got the, the 10 game SEC schedule now, all conference games. My prediction doesn't mean anything, but I can I can see them going <laughs> seven and three. You know, to add Auburn yeah. the first game, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if they beat Auburn. Auburn isn't one of those, you know, popular names, blue blood names. Mm -hmm. uh, but Kentucky can go down there and beat Auburn. Uh, seven and three, six and four. I think that's where they'll end up, and and that'll you, that's a good season when you play ten straight SEC teams. Man, that that will be a great season. That means that. What that, what that means to me is that Kentucky football is on the rise, you know. So you won't be sneaking up on anyone anymore. I, I think when you start having – when you can put consecutive uh, winning season together, like that's when you start getting respect. If you have just one really good season, then you have a drop-off and then another drop-off, you lose respect. But how you gain respect is by putting them consecutive seasons together. You know, when you can go like a – uh, eight and four, or nine and three, you know, or, or ten and ten and three. You start putting these really good seasons together, then you start gaining more respect around not only around the conference but nationally. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where Kentucky, you know, where they're trying to get to. And, and it takes time, you know. It really takes bringing in the right coach and and them having the right culture for the right players. And as we talked about early, you know, you got to start getting the best players in your state, and then you can go other other places to recruit that kind of talent. That's it. We're going to try to get some of these, you know, other Believe podcast hosts and these SEC streets on here as football season comes, chop it up with them and see if it'll work out for them to hop on with us too here in a little bit. Speaking of football, you know, we, as y'all listeners know, you know, TD's team before the Titans came to his home state of Tennessee was those 49ers. So we're going to be, you know, Cowboys, Niners knocking heads all year. Tony's got Jerry Rice. I don't know if you saw it. Jerry Rice was tripping a little bit earlier in the week because he said that Jimmy Garoppolo was already better than Dak Prescott. Now, bless Jerry's heart. He's the greatest receiver ever, but he was tripping. So I'm just, I just had to call him out. You know, he's a little off base with that statement. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, he was, man. You know, but to each his own, it's his opinion. It is. And when you have an opinion, you know, your opinion is, is, is only right to you. <laughs> and everybody else might not agree to that opinion, but at the end of the day, you want to make sure that you, when you make that kind of statement, you got to have you got to have some facts. Now, <laughs> people are really concerned about how can you have the right facts in place. But at the end of the day, like I said, you know, when someone can voice their opinion, that's what's going to be key to you know who they are as an individual, and, and that's what they believe. At the end of the day, that doesn't mean it's right. You know, a doctor can give their opinion about basketball. But are we taking that doctor's advice? Probably not. You know, so Jerry is a receiver. So if he was speaking about a receiver, I think more people would be like, yeah, you know, he could be right. But now he's talking about quarterbacks. And when you talk about quarterbacks, it, it kind of changes. But, um, you know, Dak has to – because you know, they do have a great offensive team this year. So it's going to be challenging to kind of see where Dak and those guys are at. But uh, I think you really got to look at – where Garoppolo has been, and he had, he had a chance to really lead his his team to a Super Bowl, and he and he has a Super Bowl ring. If I'm not mistaken, he might have two Super Bowls on on the shoulders of Tom Brady. But hey, he still got two rings if he got them. I don't that's care. Right. That's right. Can't take him away. And and you know Jerry's gonna be biased to his guy playing for the Niners, and you know absolutely I understand that. So yeah, and you know Garoppolo, he they got a you know you got Kittle to tight end, they got that running game. 
he he's on his way. You know, this is be his second full year as a starter. He he'll probably progress and continue to get better. But you know, I just had to mess with Jerry and, and talk a little trash and you know get that stirred up since since that just happened. Um. Before we get to the playoffs, too, man, the 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 Nets were in the bubble. They they made the first round against the Raptors. We've been talking about coaches and coaching hires at different points and times on different episodes. They hire Steve Nash today, so I just got I, I gotta ask what you think about that one. It's you know what, because I played with Steve. We, of course, we were in the same draft. Ninety six, Steve went uh, fifteen. I went sixteen. So Steve was a. And I was just telling someone this morning, was probably one of my favorite teammates that I played with in NBA. Is a unbelievable dude and has a, a great smile, a great charisma that, you know, you would think with him being at that time uh, just one of the, you know, one of the best players in the game was the most humble player that, I, that you could have come across. After the game, signed kids, autographed, took pictures. You know, he wasn't. He wasn't like a normal superstar where they didn't want to sign anything. They just went straight to the bus. Like, he stopped. He had conversations. He had time for people. So that's something that always resonated in my head about just having the character. You know what I'm saying? So him having a good connection with, with Kevin Durant, him being a, a, a great point guard, he has a connection with, uh, with uh, Kyrie Irving. And just their team. I think he's inherent a good team. And, and I'm sure Sean Marks and, you know, those guys will put a good staff around him to allow him to be, you know, um, you know, on the same level as a Steve Kerr. Because Steve Kerr inherited a really good team when he took over from Mark Jackson. I, I think people sometimes forget that that team was really good. You know, they were one player or two away. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it's still going to be his first coaching gig. And, I want to see him do well, you know, just because, you know, who he is and me being a teammate is, is what I look, what I look for and just who he is and how hard he works and how much he loves the game. So he'll be able to relate to the younger generation because he's been around these guys for the last couple of years. Yeah. I think it was Mark Stein that reported that he had, it reached out to Dirk about seeing if Dirk wanted to be an assistant, but Dirk wasn't quite ready to jump back into doing you know, a full-time gig yet since he just retired. So they was going to try to team it up like they did, you know, in Dallas back in the day on the staff. But Dirk is Dirk said he wasn't ready to be jumping back into coaching just yet. Now, now I, I don't I don't know if, if that would be a, a good connection, you know, the two of them hooking back up because uh, those two guys really, really did enjoy each other a lot, a lot off the court. So I, I don't know if their minds are ready to be – uh, Steve is. I don't. I don't know where Dirk is at. Dirk was finishing up at the end of his career on who we was as a player, and uh, I think with Steve is more about you know Steve has a different mindset. You have to go in as a coach. You have to go in as a as a a mentor. You have to be firm with your decisions, and that's where I think Steve is going to be really good at is that he kind of knows what it takes to to be a winner, and like I said, work ethic. Uh, he wasn't, wasn't the most athletic guy, but he understood how to get to the to certain spots on the court, uh, was a prolific free-throw shooter, uh, mid-range shooter, um, 
just being able to use his uh, his craftiness because he wasn't one of the quickest players. And then I always tell people, you know, they talk about, well, he never – he wasn't a good defender. I said, what he did do well, I say Steve was a – he played hard on defense. Like, he didn't just down defense. And I think most people do that. You know, they, they consider, like, most guys – like Steve to be like, oh, no, those guys are good, but they don't play in the defense. They can't guard anyone. I'm like, no, nah, so that dude competed. And I like guys that compete, and I think that's what he's going to get out of, out of, his, uh, out of his new team. Yeah. And Karis LeVert is a rising player as well. Uh, he, he made a lot of noise without Kyrie and, and KD in the bubble. So uh, I, think, I think he'll come in the next year with a lot of confidence too. He should. I, I think what, what makes him good is that he is uh, he understands that the key to to success is, you know, buying having people buy into to the defensive side of the ball. And if you can get people to buy in defensively, I think that's what's gonna make a really good team. And you know, when you but all these coaches, they gotta come in and kind of have their imprint on it. And when you can put your imprint on it, then that means like, you know, you understand exactly what it takes to be good. And those guys are buying into what you're selling. And, you know, you got to walk in and, and demand respect. But, you know, his body of work is going to allow him to, to get that respect. I got to backtrack just a little bit since the, the first round just ended. I don't think I asked you about it while the Clippers and Mavs series was going on. We saw Marcus Morris and Luka Doncic. If Tony Delk's left ankle is injured and Marcus Moore steps on it and makes your sneaker come off, how is Tony Delk reacting? Or what is he thinking that's intentional? Is he thinking it's just part of the game? What it's you- part of the game, but you got to figure out how to get those guys back. You know what I'm saying? I think that's what's going to be key is, you know, you can't, you can't retaliate right away, but you will, there will be a retaliation. I think that's where Luca is at when it comes to, you know, him being, you know, one of the faces of the, uh, of the NBA. And, uh, you know, Morris, like I said, you know, he's he's enforcer. So your enforcer is going to do what he got to do if he feel like, you know, it, what's warranted to help his team win. And if it's like, you know, stepping on somebody's ankle or just uh, pulling, pulling a, a Zaza Pachulia, what he did on Kawhi Leonard, you got to do what you got to do, man. It's, mm-hmm. hey, it's, it's a game. It's a game of, uh, game of runs and also it's a game of uh, what do I have to do to help my team advance to the next round. So he was he – was... He played that smooth as an accident when he stepped on his foot. There wasn't no purpose. Or he sold it enough to where it came across as an accident. Yeah, we all know what it was. Come on, man. We 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 we, we always you know it was, I think going back to the, the incident where he hit my hit my guy in the head with the ball. Who was that from? <laughs> I think it was in uh it might have been with Brooklyn. So <laughs> He was with the he was with the Knicks. This might have happened either this year, I think happened the early part of this year, where he just, man, he just hit the dude and hit the ball. I was like, now that that was definitely warrant a fight or a fine. One of the two should have been happening, but you know, it's a different brand of basketball now. One that that they definitely try to work work with players on and just try to make sure the game is clean as possible. And you know, when you have that in in the play, I mean, it's it's really something where the game to me, it gets better because, you know, we have so many guys that are young and upcoming, you know, with Murray and, and Mitchell, those guys are showing that they probably can be, you know, the, in the top 10 in a couple of years. Because um, like you say, LeBron is getting older, KD's getting older. So somebody has to be ready to carry this, uh, 
carry carry the league, and uh, I think we have some good ambassadors. You mentioned Murray and the show he put on that series with you. Uh, tough way for Mitchell's season to end with that shot rimming out that could have you know moved him on to the second round. With guys like that showing out in these series, you being the shooter that you were, do you think that being in the bubble has, has helped the shooting? You're on the same gym all the time, the same rims. Do you think that's an advantage going off in the player? It's a little bit of an advantage. When you can just – it's like playing pickup basketball and coming in playing with the, with the same guys and, and playing on the, same, on the same basket all the time. You know, it, it really helps your routine and, you know, you, you feel differently when you're on that court. And that's how I look at it when I can go and play in the same place. You should be really good. Like, that's one of the reasons why home teams do well at home. They're shooting on their court. They know their rims, uh, the ball, the feel of the ball. So it gives you an advantage. And, and, and I think shooting has been better in the bubble, you know, to be honest with you. Like I said, you're not really traveling and going to a whole different, different uh, arena. And you, like I said, those guys got a chance really to get a lot of shots up. And uh, I thought that that Denver and Utah game, it was great defense. Like I knew it wasn't going to be a 40, 50 point game again. I was like, game sevens are always defensive minded games. Cause it's not like, um, you know, you get another game. If you lose, there's one more game. You really got to lock in. Because even now, you know, uh, with OKC in Houston, James Hart made a great defensive play. But he made a great defensive play before the ball went out, was passed out to the three-point line. Because he had to stay at home on the guy that was driving. Because, you know, if you don't stay at home, you give up a layup to the big. But then just his closeout, and he closed out to his side where he didn't really bother. The he didn't – he didn't – Close out right in front of him, that probably would have caused a foul. Mm -hmm, for sure. Do you think the being in the same time zone helps as well? You're not traveling across the country like you all normally do during the course of a season. Everybody's acclimated to the Eastern time zone. You think that's playing a role uh, as far as the level of play, too, where you're not maybe jet lagged a little bit? Yeah, I think it helps. I think you, once you get your, you get set at, um, at a certain time, you know, and you know when that game is going to be, you know, now your body just got to get acclimated. And I think most of the guys, about them being in the bubble, everyone has pretty much gotten acclimated. And that's another thing where, like I said, playing pickup basketball, you're playing at the same time with the same guys uh, in the same gym. You know, you're going to feel good about when you walk in there. There ain't nothing. Everything's familiar to you. It's, it's nothing like, man, the backdrop is this. I don't like these rims. Uh, the court feels like this. Oh, we got these basketball, but everything can be the same because what NBA players, NFL, MLB players, hockey players, soccer, we all are creature, creatures of habit. We like to do the same thing. So that's what makes us successful. I spoke with some, some teammates of yours in the past on the, the other show I do, Cats Talk Windsor with my buddy Terry Brown. And, you know, they were shooters as well at Kentucky, and they said that, you know, a guy closing out didn't really bother them. Now, you know, sometimes they block the shot, but if he's just running at you or contesting or getting a hand up in your face, that didn't bother them. Was that your mindset as well? Like, I'm I'm not even worried about this guy running at me to contest my shot, or did you still kind of see that stuff in the corner of your eye? Or I think um, when you think about it, it's really, it's really something where, to me, 
I really didn't think about it. So I think you went, you did it so much that it was routine. It's, it's normally somebody's always closing out, somebody's running at you. But what I was told was just keep you out on the basket. Like that's not gonna change. So I made this shot, whether somebody's running me or not. I don't worry about the person running, even if they're running right at me. I still have to release, and as long as I'm able to land. And most of the guys you play, if they play basketball, you know, unless you're just playing against a bunch of wild guys and a lot of play, they might run you over. But by that time, you're not really playing. You have eliminated playing against those guys by the time you get to, you know, to the highest level, of course. But um, I don't. I, I never thought about it. You know, I'm focused on the rim, the ball coming in. Plus, I had a quick release. So once that ball swung, and I was getting rid of it. So by the time you got there, you know, I, I'm seeing the ball went through the net. You were too late anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to, you know, this past week was just really stunning, shocking from the standpoint of people that we lost in, in the basketball world, uh, in the entertainment world, the sports and entertainment world. You start off, you have you had uh, Lute Olsen, who coached in Arizona, um, had a couple opportunities, kind of like Billy Donovan, to be the Kentucky coach. His name came up when Joe B. Hall uh, was was caught, was hanging it up. Uh, so he had a couple times where his name was, you know, on Kentucky's list, and he stayed at Arizona, uh, won a title in 97, passed away at age 85. So huge loss for you know, Arizona and, and all the guys that played for him. Yeah, Lou was an um, unbelievable coach, man. And I can tell you what he was talking to some of the guys you know, who I who I became friends with from, from Arizona was that he was a player's coach. And he had a, a great smile about him. But you could just tell he was not only a coach, he was a father figure to those guys. And when you can get a coach that understands, uh, you know, our culture and embrace us, as I said, like Billy Donovan did, um, you know, th- those guys are going to play even harder for him. And, you know, he never, you know, from the guys I talked to, they came in, they, they gave 100% every day. And, and it's just respect. So losing, like, a Lute Olsen, uh, Lute Olsen, and then you losing, you know, who I consider, like, one of the first black coaches that I really uh, wanted to play for, you know, Big John Thompson. And, you know, just how he – wanted to see you know black players succeed and you know 97 percent of his his uh students or players that you know stayed four years graduated from georgetown you know he was just not there to recruit guys just to play basketball he recruited guys to turn into men mature and also guys that when it came time for them to be in position to get a job guess what they had a degree you know those guys were business minded because he knew the basketball the balls will stop bouncing for everyone so he really uh, preached education to those guys, and those guys bought in. So, you know, he was he spoke up for Proposition 42. Um, I want to say he walked out of one of the games because he felt like, um, you know, the rules at the time wasn't worn to, to our culture. So he, he was a pioneer, you know, and, and, you know, he left his imprint not only as Big John, but just as ambassador for black culture and just, him fighting for black athletes. Yeah, and he was the common thread between him and Lute Olsen. They they both had to beat Kentucky to win their titles. You know, Big Thompson in '84 and Olsen in '97. Uh, both of them had to knock UK out on their way to cutting down the nets. So 
Yeah, that that, that ninety seven man was was. I, you know what? I think what made it tough was that Derek Anderson. You know, if let's say if he didn't get hurt, you know, I knew I knew we had a shot because you just couldn't key in on Ron Mercer, you know. And although the game went in overtime, and you know, one of my one of my guys that came in in my '92 draft, if he could have made some free throws. That is Jared Prickett and uh, Big Nazi. You know, they missed quite a few free throws, but yeah. that Arizona team got hot at the right time. And um, you know, like I said, you know, credit to them for you know them closing. Hey, as I said, man, you got to get there. You got to win. You got to beat somebody good. And you know, at, at the end of the day, you got to get lucky. Yeah. Another loss way too soon, age 53, Uncle Cliff, Cliff Robinson, played in the league forever on those good Portland teams, played in Phoenix, kind of a stretch guy, 6'10", out there shooting threes. Uh, I know you know him well. Uh, the famous picture where Jordan hit the six threes in 92 and did the shrug, Cliff Robinson's in the background on that picture when, you know, the Bulls are on their way to winning their second title. Uh, 53 years old, a long battle with lymphoma, so condolences to him and his family, to his family also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We sent our condolences out to, to Olsen, uh, Big John Thomas, his family, and Cliff Robinson, who was a, a – a good teammate of mine, man. He's a, a good dude. I enjoyed, uh, you know, we, we shared a locker right next to one another, which is so funny. You know, I, I would always ask him. I'm like, Cliff, man, we would have practice at 11 o'clock. Cliff, it was like clockwork. Every day at like 10.58, he come rolling in. I'm like, dude, how far you live from me? He's like, oh, I live, I live upstairs. I'm like, huh? Like, you live like, he's like, he was, dude, he lived in an apartment. He's like five minutes away, like literally, like, he could, he would take like, uh, I think it was like a like a wasn't a tunnel, but you know it was a walkway, and he would literally be every day. When I tell you ten fifty eight, ten fifty nine, so all the players and coaches would already be on the floor, and he would be the last one every day. But when I tell you, it was one of the hardest working players that uh that I played with. He brought it every day, you know. So uh, that's a. You know, for our basketball community, I mean, that was a huge loss. You know, just losing lose Uncle Cliff because, you know, he gave he gave his all. When he stepped on the court, man, you know, he he poured it all out. And when you have players like that, you remember those guys, and you know, just for their contribution to the game, but just who they are you know, as individuals, something that will always stand out. Absolutely. And finally, and I'm not the biggest movie guy in the world. I say it all the time. You know, people make fun of me for so many movies that I haven't seen through the years. It's like pulling teeth to get me to watch a movie. If you do, I'll usually get sucked in and, and have a good time watching it. It's just getting me to actually sit down and watch it. But Chadwick Boseman passing away uh, after the battle with cancer for four years, didn't know he had it. I watched Black Panther. And then I started watching the entire series of the other movies just because I yeah. Black Panther because of Chadwick Boseman. That's the impact of him. And then we started watching all the other ones, the Civil War, the Avengers, the this, the that, and the other. I hadn't watched any of that before Black Panther came out. And now I've seen all of them. So that <laughs> that tells you how much of an impact he had when that movie came out two years ago. Yeah, you know, like I said, it, it does make you go back and want to watch some of the movies that that he definitely uh, was a part of. And, you know, he was, 
a leading character, but it speaks volumes for, you know, his body of work and just his resilience going through cancer for those years and none of us not knowing. And then being ridiculed when he was looked at, he's lost weight or, you know, social media. So people, before they make judgment, you know, you got to see, you got to see what's going on. You got to feel somebody else's pain. And it was like, oh, well, gosh, we didn't know that now, you know, everybody was being sympathetic, but you sh should have been like that in the beginning. You know, you got to understand that, you know, when somebody's going, we don't know what people are going through. It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter the age is that you think about, you know, life. And this year has been, you know, crazy for so many people, so many families, how they've been affected. And, you know, we're so worried about, okay, well, I see something different that I didn't see a couple of years ago, he doesn't look the same. Well, he's sick. What, what, what is he sick with? You know what's going on? Let's, let's wait and see what happens, you know, and before we start making judgment. But, you know, he was a remarkable actor that, um, you know, played some, some, some big time leading roles, man, from James Brown to Jackie Robinson. I mean, it was, I mean, gosh, I'm like, that dude did all that in this amount of time being sick. It lets you know that he was a special play, uh, special actor that was on his way. And just what Denzel, how he saw, you know, him being uh, a superstar in movies and, you know, he invested in him and not invested in him that he, you know, felt like he was going to get something in return, but he saw his potential. And when you see that, man, you want to do what you can to help people out. And I think that's where, you know, this loss hurts, you know, the, the Hollywood, the black culture in Hollywood, the black actors in Hollywood, because we had to fight 10 times harder. And when you got a, a guy that was fighting like that for his life that we didn't know about, it's courageous on his part. He's bulking up for a role, slimming down for a role, all while going to treatment and, and just grinding through every bit of it. Um, yeah, we just got, like I said, we just got to keep, like, keep his family, his family in our hearts and prayers and, and just, uh, you know, not to be so critical with people. You know, we just got to, you know, go with them and, and just ride them out until, you know, we figure out like, hey, man, you know, let's appreciate his body of work. And I think that's going to be important for us going forward if we can learn anything from this. Absolutely. So we got Lakers, Rockets, Clippers, Nuggets in the West, Celtics, Raptors, Heat, Bucks in the East. What's the final four going to be? Who's, who's, who's in the Eastern Finals? Who's in the Western Finals? I'm going to say Miami, Boston, East, and the two L.A. teams. Uh, I just see it playing out that way. I think um, I, I see the, the Lakers beating Houston in four games. Uh, I don't see because they have nobody who can stop LeBron. Mm -hmm. And we don't have anybody to stop him. It's a problem. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> it is a real problem. That dude, that dude what, what he does, and if you don't have a, a player that can guard him, and you can't put a little P.J. on him because P.J. Is, is too small. Right. That's right. Saying so this, they've been on a collision course basically since the start of the season. Clippers, Lakers, the whole L.A., you know, little guys trying to, you know, roll in there and, and take it away from the big brother Lakers. So it's, it's been that hype. Before the corona hit, they were on a collision course. Now that things are started back in the bubble, they're back on that same collision course. If they handle business in this second round, everybody will get their wish for Clippers-Lakers conference finals. Should be it should be a, a really good conference final and what I think is gonna play out is gonna to be totally different from what usually happens is that they have a bunch of players that can guard that can guard the ball and 
that's what's going to help them out. But I think with with with, uh, with Houston, it's going to be a little bit different because they're uh, they're always too too many threes, and until they figure out how to become a better mid-range. And I think this is where Chris Paul, you know, was so upset with last year is that, or even the year before, is you got to – you can't just be a primary three-point shooting team expecting for your threes to always fall. Because eventually, like I said, teams, they're going to take that away from you. And when they take that away, what are you going to be able to do next time around? And you got to be able to make an adjustment. That's it. And when, and when you don't make an adjustment, that's when you have a problem trying to figure out – you know, how can we guard this team? Exactly. Another great episode. TD, you dropping mad knowledge. These listeners, y'all definitely tune in and enjoy everything TD's been saying. And it's been fun doing it. Enjoy the rest of the week. Enjoy the games. Enjoy the little bits of normal that we've been able to get. And we look forward to doing this all again next week on the Believe in Kentucky podcast, y'all. Yes, sir. Let's make it happen. All right, my brother. Check us out where you get your podcast. They'll be there at your convenience. We'll see y'all next week. All right. Have a good one, boy. Slow it. Have a good weekend. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube